This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The federal government jumped into the world of dietary advice in the late 1970s. Even at the time, those issuing the advice didn't know if it was sound. We now know federal dietary guidelines have contributed to high levels of obesity, diabetes, and other health problems. Terrence Keeley is author of the new Cato paper, Why Does the Federal Government Issue Damaging Dietary Guidelines? It's available today at cato.org. What does Thomas Jefferson have to tell us about dietary guidelines? That was sort of a surprising uh, piece of your uh, paper that you just put out. Well, what he said in his notes on the state of Virginia in 1787, his exact words were, was the government to prescribe to us our diet, our bodies would be in such keeping as our souls are now. Now, actually, he didn't mean that really as an attack on the idea that government should give us dietary advice. He was more using that the idea that government should give us dietary advice is so ridiculous, and he was using that in terms of another argument. What we now have is a situation, however, when governments most certainly do give us dietary advice, and it's gone as badly as Thomas Jefferson had anticipated it would. All right, so um, when did the government step in and say... Uh, this is the kind of diet you ought to have. I know, I mean, the 1964 Surgeon General's report said, hey, dummy, stop smoking. Yeah. Um, In those days, uh, in 1964, in fact, until 1977, the government was telling people what they should eat more of. They should be eating more fruit, more vegetables, more vitamins. The idea that governments should start telling us to eat less started in 1977 with the epidemic of heart attacks. And that was the thing that changed everything. In 1977, easily the commonest cause of death in the United States, in fact, across the Western world, was heart attacks. No one knew where they were coming from. It was very, very frightening. Lots of otherwise healthy people were suddenly dying in the middle of life. And this was seen rightly as as a disaster and a tragedy and a nightmare. And so dietary advice was rushed out in the hope that the government might have understood what was causing this epidemic. So tell me about the Senate Select Committee. Why were these people chosen? Um, And I guess I can understand if there's some widespread health concern, people might naturally look to the government to get to the bottom of it. And uh, certainly the government has a great deal of resources to do that. Uh, What did the Senate Select Committee do? What was their charge? Well, that is a very good question. The The Senate Select Committee basically created itself. It was very much an initiative of Senator George McGovern, who believed that it was one of the responsibilities of government to give people advice on health and diet in particular. Uh, Initially, even that committee, which by 1977 was some years old actually, even that committee had initially restricted itself to telling people to eat more fruit and vegetables and all that sort of good stuff. It was only in 1977, with the epidemic of heart attacks, that they bought into the theory promoted by a professor called Ansel Keys, that this epidemic of heart attacks was caused by eating too much fat, in particular, too much animal fat. And at that point, the Senate committee took the theories of Ansel Keys and said, we're going to promote those theories. We're going to tell the American people to eat less fat in general and less saturated fat in particular. 
Now, um, you write in, in your book, Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal, which I will commend to people. I'm reading it right now. Um, that, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that with, with regard to the government was getting people to eat breakfast. And that was, but that was decades earlier. And that was part of a a broader sort of corporate push to get people to eat more bread and grain and cereal. Yeah. The breakfast thing, which is an, an equal disaster. I mean, breakfast really is a dangerous meal. Um, our bodies frankly, we're not designed to be constantly eating. We're grazing all the time. We have breakfast, we have lunch, we have dinner, we have snacks. Our bodies weren't designed to do that. Um, And breakfast in particular is pushed very, very hard by the cereal companies who obviously have a vested interest in trying to sell us cereals. If you're going to eat breakfast, the last thing you should eat is carbohydrate because in the mornings, you're particularly resistant to carbohydrate. However, that is mainly a corporate problem. The government, actually in 2015, sorry, in 2010, the the dietary guidelines issued that year by the Department of Agriculture did actually suggest that breakfast should be eaten. So they were going along at that point with the corporate interests but the government has slightly withdrawn from that now. So breakfast is a dangerous meal, but that was always promoted by corporations trying to sell cereals. Fat being dangerous was the government specifically worried about heart attacks. So they're both abuses of science, but they do come from different sources. You draw this distinction between the government saying, eat more of this and eat more of that, to what seems like in your telling of it uh, is a radical change to then say, eat less of this, eat less of that. Oh, oh, it is a radical change. I mean, malnutrition was a real problem, particularly in the southern states until really quite recently. And there were people suffering from diseases of vitamin deficiency because the, the diet in the southern states in particular could be really very poor. And so what the government was constantly trying to do is encourage people to eat more healthily and a wider variety, a balanced diet. It was good advice, actually. I think everyone would agree that until 1977, when the government was encouraging people to eat uh, a broader range of vitamins and vegetables and fruit, dietary advice was really very good. The problem in 1977, when the government said stop eating fat, was that the government was not articulating advice that everyone agreed with. What the government was doing is it was taking one argument in an argument. So the world of nutrition, the world of biochemistry, the world of heart disease was divided in 1977. Some people thought it was due to too much fat in the diet, but others really credible and authoritative researchers thought it was due to too much carbohydrate in the diet. And what the government did, which was really bad, was it went on one side of the argument rather than the other for really no very good reason at all. It was just an instinct that the government had because heart attacks are caused by fat accumulating in the arteries of the heart. Fat, of course, is fat. Therefore, it seemed very obvious that if you eat too much fat, you get too much fat in the heart. Biology is never that straightforward. It was a bad mistake. So, um, you know, given what was known at the time, we could forgive uh, somebody or a group of people for saying, well, 
look, this is the best information that we have. We think this argument is slightly stronger, so this is the advice we're going to give. What's, what, what is different about the government being that body that is, is making that recommendation? Well, because we all basically trust the government to a huge degree. If some professor in Minnesota says, I don't think you should be eating all this fat, we're likely to think, well, yes, and tomorrow we'll be told we mustn't eat too much coffee, and the day after that we'll be told uh, that green beans are full of cancer. You know, everyone knows that individual professors give dietary advice, which often is turned over by the newspapers the very next day. But the government is believed to be authoritative. The government is believed to be judicious. The government is believed to take up all the evidence, to consider it carefully, and to come up with a measured, thoughtful conclusion. That's not what happened in 1977. In 1977, the select committee led by George McGovern selected witnesses who were pre-selected to give only one side of a piece of advice. One of the awful things we now know is that the scientific advisor to that committee, a Harvard professor called Mark Hegstead, he's now dead, he was actually receiving payments from the sugar industry to promote the benefits of carbohydrate. These, of course, payments were kept secret at the time. So the committee was extremely biased even from the beginning. And so you have a situation where George McGovern, terrified by all these heart attacks, also, of course, wanting to use these heart attacks to promote himself to the American people as an important, thoughtful person. He grabs Mark Hegstead from Harvard. He grabs a group of nutritionists and say, give me a story I can sell to the American people to make me look good, because I'm afraid that's how politicians have to operate, but also, hopefully, will make the American people get better. What was wrong about that? And he specifically acknowledged this. McGovern admitted this. He said... We know that we don't have all the facts, but what harm can there be in eating less fat? Those were actually his words. He said, we don't know all the facts, but what harm can there be in eating less fat? To which, by the way, the answer is a lot of harm, because as a consequence of that advice, for the next 30 years, the American people started to go over to what are called trans fatty acids, the sort of stuff you get in margarine, which is really bad for you. But because it was unsaturated, people thought that trans was good for you. Actually, trans is really bad for you. And the American people started eating carbohydrates, greatly increasing their intake of bread and cereals and potatoes and things like that instead of fat. You can see it in the sales figures. The American people really took the advice of the government. They really followed the advice. But we now know that carbohydrates are bad for you. And we now know that fats per se are certainly not bad for you. Even animal fats are perhaps not bad for you. Vegetable fats are certainly good for you. And the advice was simply premature. So uh, with respect to the government, you say that they presented a one, si one side essentially of an argument that was being had over nutrition. There was a lot of published research on both sides uh, of the issue, really sort of about uh, the benefits of grains versus the, the harms of, of fats. But uh, you make note in your paper, uh, somebody from us uh, from Stanford University, uh, John Ioannidis, of Stanford, he uh, wrote in 2005 a paper called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. 
So, so, so help me understand that in the context of, of food. Well, John Ioannidis is one of a group of statisticians. Uh, there's another man called Brian Nosek at the University of Virginia, and they have two or three other very important collaborators who've made some startling discoveries the last few years about the quality of published science. When I was doing my own PhD years and years ago, I had the great privilege of having the lab next door to a man called Hans Krebs, who won the Nobel Prize for biochemistry. And he once said to me, he was famous for saying this, he would say, if you have to do statistics, you're doing the wrong experiment. Now, he was talking as a biochemist. The problem is in nutrition and in public health generally, you have to do, inverted commas, the wrong experiment, close inverted commas. You can't get data on thousands and thousands of people who are doing thousands and thousands of different things, driving cars, smoking cigarettes, eating cereals, whatever, without doing complicated statistics. And the problem with statistics is they really lend themselves to bias and abuse and selective data. And what John Ioannidis, amongst others, have shown recently is that researchers use statistics to promote the publication of their papers. We live in a world of what's, you know, what's often called confirmation bias. Editors of journals like to publish a particular type of paper with a particular type of result. Grant-giving bodies like to give grants to certain data and not to others. For example, it was almost impossible to get a grant for 30 years from the government agencies unless you were trying to study that fat was dangerous. If you went to these agencies and said you want to study the fact that fat might be good for you, the chances of getting a grant are pretty slim. And so in a world where even the journals and the grant-giving bodies and the promotion bodies at the universities all have confirmation bias, if you don't produce the results that they want, your career will suffer. What John Ioannidis has shown, and he's not the only one, there's Brian Nozick, and there's a group of them, they're fantastic people. What they've shown is the whole of science, which uses statistics, mainly biological science, has become hugely biased in particular directions because that is in the interest of, it, of scientists to confirm the confirmation bias of the people who control the money and the promotion and the papers and the grants. And so should scientists be focused on uh, falsification bias? Is the, would that be a better bias to have? Actually, science has a real crisis on its hands. And to be fair to the scientific community, it is having a very vigorous conversation with itself as to how to handle this. For now, everybody should understand this. And I mean everybody. A scientific paper should be seen as a piece of advocacy, like when you go to court and you have the counsel for the prosecution or the counsel for the defense, you know very well if you're a judge that the lawyer on one side or other is going to give a very selective view. He or she will never take an, make an actual lie, at least you hope they won't actually make a lie, but they'll absolutely select the data that suits their client, whichever side they're on. And you as a judge have to learn how to discriminate. And of course, it helps enormously if you've got two competing lawyers saying very different things. What we as ordinary consumers of science or readers of newspapers or going on the internet and seeing what's being said, 
What we have to understand is you cannot accept the statement of a scientific paper as a piece of objective truth. We have to get that out of our minds. We have somehow all been brought up to believe that scientists are these dispassionate searchers after truth, concerned only with the greater public good. Unfortunately, researchers are human beings with all the faults that comes with that. What we have to do is every time we see a scientific paper, we have to ask ourselves, hmm, how likely is that to be true? And here, I'm going to very slightly criticize, I regret to say, the media. I hate to sound like President Trump talking about fake news, but I do think that the journalists should be much, much more skeptical about the way they report because most science journalists are themselves trained scientists. They actually know how to distinguish between good and bad science, but they tend to forget that when they're acting as journalists. They just go for a good story. And it's a much better story to say, coffee will kill you within three weeks rather than a lunatic scientist in this university says that coffee will kill you in three weeks, but of course he's wrong for the following seven reasons. We've got to persuade the media somehow to be more skeptical of the way it reports research. So with respect to uh, dietary guidelines, and as you note in your paper, um, the American public, after these guidelines were issued, essentially followed that advice to uh, dramatically reduce uh, fat consumption and uh, uh, particularly saturated fat consumption and dramatically in increase the consumption of carbohydrates. Uh, so with respect to the government deciding to pick a side or decide that this, this argument is over, uh, the discussion is now closed uh, with respect to nutrition. What should the role of government be here? Well, the role of government, well, one role of government might be simply to withdraw, to say it's not to say it's not the role. I mean, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson would have believed that. Thomas Jefferson would have said it's not the role of government to tell us what to eat. There are out there lots and lots of different universities with lots and lots of different professors. Let them thrash it out. Let there be a free market of ideas. Let's accept that no one knows what the truth is today, but let's hope that in 5, 10, 20 years' time, the truth will emerge. So probably the best role of government is simply to withdraw from the debate and say, this is not a role for government. If the government is going to have a role here, and I, as you can see, I'm reluctant, but if the government were to have a role, it should only be to highlight which pieces of science seem more credible. Um, in my breakfast book, I pointed out that one particular strand of research was of particular high quality because it had actually been done amazingly, bizarrely, by a philosopher. Why a philosopher got involved in breakfast science, I have no idea. But this philosopher looked at a whole series of papers on breakfast, and by applying really discriminating analytical thought, he pointed out that most of this, the papers in this stream of research could be completely ignored because the quality of the methodology was so inferior. If the government's going to get involved in nutrition science, it should restrict itself, in my opinion, to employing the best statisticians and the best philosophers, and I mean philosophers, to look at the papers and to tell the general public, look, these papers can probably be trusted, these certainly can't. We're still not going to tell you what to think, but at least you'll know which data is probably more credible. But the government should do it in a completely dispassionate way, like a judge in a court. I don't mean a politicized court like the Supreme Court. I mean a judge in a proper court where the judge is simply searching after truth. 
That is the maximum role I would give government. But I would actually minimise the role of government and leave it to the market and ideas primarily to get to the truth eventually. Terence Keeley is author of the new Cato paper, Why Does the Federal Government Issue Damaging Dietary Guidelines? It's available today at cato.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.